This is PodBridge. Connecting the U.S., the Middle East, and the world. Welcome. My name is Yusuf Aloteba, and I'm the UA Ambassador to the United States. PodBridge is an experiment. It's a podcast series, and as the name suggests, the goal is to build bridges between the United States and the Middle East. We'll explore how we collaborate, cooperate, and innovate together. From art and sports to health and space, we will try to get into a broad range of subjects that connect us and inspire us. I'll host some episodes. Others will be hosted by experts and leaders who are far more qualified in their respective fields. We will do our best to make these conversations interesting and informative. Our goal is to learn more about each other, about the values we share, and about what brings people together. For our first show, we'll be joined by two people who have inspired me and who are very highly respected in their sector. I'm also lucky to call them both close friends. Both have been leading the fight against the coronavirus pandemic here in the U.S., and both will bring a global perspective on the disease and their experiences working in the UAE and around the world. Dr. Tom Mialovich is the president and CEO of Cleveland Clinic. Tom's position before taking up his current post was CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Dr. Kurt Newman is president and CEO of Children's National Medical Center here in Washington. Kurt has helped to improve pediatric care for kids in the UAE and has treated thousands of kids from the UAE and around the world here in Washington. And as I said, both are very dear friends. Tommy and Kurt, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Let's me, let me start by asking you guys, how are you both doing? How are your days looking? How, how are you handling the stress of this environment? How much time are you dedicating to dealing with corona versus dealing with all the other responsibilities you have and leading to world-class healthcare facilities? So this is, this is Tom Mihailovic. So uh, first of all, Yusuf, thank you very much for having us uh, on call today on this podcast. Well, this has been an interesting time, obviously, for all of us who, who live and work in healthcare. And uh, most of our time and effort over the past uh, four months has been consumed by our response to COVID-19. Although we are now actively, uh, once we stabilized our position, are actively looking on how to make sure that we continue to provide a comprehensive healthcare, not just for, for those who are uh, infected with uh, COVID-19, but also for all of our patients who have who continue to have a very articulate uh, uh, healthcare needs. It has been obviously an unprecedented time. None of us has ever experienced anything like this. But what uh, uh, I can say is that I think there is, uh, we've learned a lot in the process, and uh, I do believe that we have found uh, very many solutions to a complex problem in a short period of time. Well, well thank you, uh, Ambassador. And it's just a, a real honor to be on this podcast with you. and my just wonderful colleague, Dr. Mihalovich. You know, it is, as he pointed out, so unprecedented. And we're dealing with conditions and dimensions of a disease that are still, there's so much uncertainty about it. So it creates uh, this whole new world of uh, trying to understand the characteristics of this disease, its impact, and how our teams uh, are dealing with it. And then at the same time, um, just like the Cleveland Clinic, we have hundreds of children that still need essential care. So I find myself in sometimes 
feeling like I'm living in these two different worlds. One of the world I know, which in and of itself has become very different because we're uh, providing care in different ways, whether it's uh, telemedicine or working in different ways. And then at the same time, uh, we're dealing with a, a, this disease that just has uh, so much impact uh, in so many different ways that we've never had to deal with before. So trying to reconcile those two things and then put it in the context of what's happening in our, our society, and everything that's, that's going on there with our associates and doctors and nurses. So uh, I find myself really, in a sense, I'm excited by all the things that I'm learning, but I also feel the pressure of trying to come up with uh, solutions for our hospital and our community. I think as someone who's not in the medical industry, we're, we're, we're dealing with a flood of information. We're not sure which parts to understand and listen to, which ones to trust and which ones not to believe in. But I think it's fair to say we're all in completely uncharted territory. And my question to both of you, and we'll start with, with Tom first, is what lessons have we learned from a global perspective? Are there lessons learned that you can say we've reached at this point, or is it too early to tell to start? Is it too premature to start drawing lessons learned from this experience? Oh, it's, it's not too premature. I think we're learning a lot at accelerated pace from our global perspective. For Cleveland Clinic, uh, as you mentioned uh, before, we have a presence in Abu Dhabi. Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi has been now in function for five years. And a lot of our response here in the United States to COVID-19 uh, has been prompted by our experiences uh, from the United Arab Emirates because uh, we had an earlier experience with the treatment of the patients in the UAE uh, that, that actually uh, helped us shape the, our clinical perspectives uh, here in the United States. And I believe that we are now in an unprecedented phase of uh, scientific collaboration. Uh, we communicate literally with an entire world. We exchange in the best possible practices uh, and uh, the best possible options for the treatment of uh, patients with COVID-19. We're even sharing resources. So yes, this learning uh, has been very intense. Uh, we have learned in a short period of time an immense amount about the completely new disease, disease that we've never faced before. So that just shows you a power of international collaboration. When very many people today are questioning globalization, I think there are very many positive expect, uh, aspects of globalization. Uh, and the other thing that we've learned is that uh, viruses, pandemics, and disease, they do not uh, recognize state or physical boundaries. We're all in this together. The challenges that, are, that uh, uh, someone may be facing in Southeast China today will be the same challenges that we'll be facing all over the world tomorrow when it comes to the spread of contagious disease. So in very many ways, we can see this as a uni uniting and unifying force uh, and unifying experience for the greater community. Dr. Newman? Thank you. I, you know, I think we're in the early phase of learning many, many lessons. And... Uh, part of that, though, is uh, thinking back and how much we've learned from earlier uh, infectious diseases and pandemics, whether it was SARS or MERS or the Ebola situation a few years ago. And I think these international 
collaborations that uh, Tom was talking about, where we learn from uh, what's happening in other countries or other hospitals, other hospital systems, or, or other uh, physicians. There's no ownership of truth when you're dealing with this kind of thing. And we all need to be open to what we can learn from each other. And it may come in, the learning may come in very interesting ways. For example, our head of infection control, a doctor, she grew up in China and went to medical school in Wuhan, China. And just by that very connection, we had some early evidence of what was happening there and could take precautionary moves. We've learned lots of lessons from other countries. And in the pediatric world, we learned about this new condition that's getting a lot of attention that overwhelms the immune system of children. We learned about that from the experience in Great Britain. I think that's one of the great lessons is by international cooperation and communication, we can find and get ahead of some of the things that are affecting, in our case, children, but and whether it's treatments or approaches, there's best practices out there that can help us. We've got a long way to go, though, to uh, uh, tackle this disease because uh, it's becoming more and more clear about all the various impacts clinically on people. And we know so little about this disease that we need to know in order to devise effective treatments and vaccine strategies. So, Dr. Newman, your, your, your answer brings me to my next question, which is, we see all these different models being used or touted. We see China that went through a very early and very strict lockdown. And then you see very small increases in numbers ever since. You've seen people talk about the Swedish model. Uh, we've seen what's happening in Europe. Is there a right model for dealing with a pandemic in general? Is there a standard approach that all of us should be using? Or is it more like an a la carte menu where you choose what you think suits you and your society best? And if so, how do we navigate this? How do we look and choose what we think suits us? I think your question at the heart of it is, how do we apply that public health knowledge into each individual society and what, what works? And to me, that's where leadership uh, comes because that's uh, what leaders need to do is they need to be able to uh, communicate what's needed and bring uh, their uh, country and their people uh, people along and, and use the resources that they've got. And there's some great examples of how that approach has really slowed down the disease, uh, slowed down the progression, and given the health system, the scientists, enough time uh, to get the hospitals ready, uh, to get everything in place, to contain the disease until we have things like vaccination or treatment. Thank you. Dr. Malevich, is, is there a standard approach? Is, is Cleveland Clinic going to create or invent the patent for how to deal with corona or any other pandemic in the future? Well, I think that there are, there are fundamentals of this disease. Uh, they're the same regardless of geography. And I think there is a certain set of unified measures that I think can be applied across the entire world. Social distancing, good cough etiquette, masking, as well as the uh, um, as uh, testing. Those are the tools that we're currently having having at uh, our disposal. But the big question is what 
you know, how do we implement these measures in different geographies and understanding that I think our goal and a, and a broader public health care spectrum is to realize that every country has its social, economical, and cultural specifics. And as we design these measures, we have to design the measures that are sustainable on a longer period of time. Given those particular circumstances, and circumstances are obviously different in Sweden than there are in some other countries in Europe, let alone for the remainder of the world. So, uh, as the fundamentals of the care of COVID patients are the same, public health care measures should be tailored. The big question is obviously how do we learn how to live with COVID? And I do believe that there is a way how to live with COVID. Uh, I would say that the, uh, probably the biggest problem that we're seeing in a public debate about the treatment of COVID is the debate when we're putting finances and economics on one side and human lives on the other side of the equation. I think that we as healthcare professionals, I think, have a responsibility to point at a simple fact that a deep economic decline deferment of care for very many uh, patients in our communities leads to potentially substantive death toll. The, uh, the poverty uh, equals uh, inability to access healthcare. That translates into, uh, into worse public healthcare outcomes. And just as Kurt mentioned before, we have to make sure that we do not lose sight of the fact that a lot that we do is geared towards the COVID, but while we're paying attention to COVID and COVID pandemic, we cannot lose sight of the simple fact that the vast majority of the health burden in the entire world uh, requires also constant attention and cannot be interrupted. So, for example, uh, I'll just give you one example. What we're seeing across the United States and across the world, we're seeing a significant decline in the number of newly diagnosed cancer cases. And I'm just using, going to use that as a simple example. Not because the cancer has gone away, because people are afraid of seeking care or they cannot access care because they are unemployed. And that, has, that, that in my mind, poses... Uh, a significant healthcare risk uh, that we need to make uh, sure that it doesn't get ignored. Uh, so the, 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 there are, this particular pandemic is, has infected very many people, but has affected very many people as well. So there is actually a greater population of people that have been affected by pandemic than has been infected by the COVID-19 virus. You touched on something earlier, Tom, that, that I think is at the heart of how we're dealing with this. And this is what I'm really interested in. I mean, for you as healthcare professionals, you're obviously looking at the healthcare side of it and protecting people and protecting lives. The other side of the debate is when to turn the economy back on to prevent exactly what you were just describing. <clears throat> how do you get people safely back to work? How do you get planes flying again? How do you get um, just people back out in, in, a, in, a, in a pattern where, you know, livelihoods are not at stake. So what is the correct intersection point between restarting the economy and getting the countries moving again versus protecting people's lives? 
Now, Yusuf, I think that is exactly the same debate. I don't think that there's a two separate debates because there is so much interdependency between a healthy economy and our ability to provide health for everyone in the economy and in countries that we serve. And I think that is a really a central point. Can we do it safely? I believe that we can. We have created a lot of safe environments where people today can work with very little interruption, uh, provide the economic value and through that generate the resources so that we can keep an entire society afloat. And I'll give you an example uh, of hospital environment. So here at Cleveland Clinic Weeks, we employ almost 70,000 people. Here in the United States, 60,000 people. And we're in a profession where you would assume that we, we have a higher risk of acquiring an infection, obviously, because that we, we work in healthcare. Yet we're currently having only two out of our 60,000 employees who are hospitalized and being treated for COVID-19 infection. Meaning we have been able to create a safe working environment by adhering to a simple principle, so social distancing, cough etiquette, masking, temperature screening at the entrance, at the entrance in a facility, and tailored testing. And then protecting the vulnerable part of our population from exposure by letting them work at home and work remote. So with these tailored measures, when we have contemporary resources that are controlled, there are very many examples when one can actually create exactly what you see, what would we seek in an opportunity to restore an economic vibrancy while not putting the, uh, the lives at risk. So it sounds like Cleveland Clinic has kind of almost perfected exactly what we think the broader country needs to accomplish, which is isolate, measure, trace, and then based on that data, you turn things back on slowly where people are not susceptible. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. You know, if you just reflect on that for a moment, uh, this is a new disease. And as disease, uh, uh, you know, started affecting an entire world, our appropriate reaction was to, to stop uh, the spread of disease by quarantine and uh, profound social distancing. But essentially, we were using the tools from the 14th century to combat the disease of the 21st century. We have yet to start using any tools of modern era to combat this disease, meaning artificial intelligence, data exchange, advancement in the pharmaceutical treatments, accelerated research through global collaboration. Uh, we have barely started using things that we have at our disposal at our fingertips. And I'm very optimistic. I think we're going to uh, come out of this stronger and uh, uh, armed with the tools that are going to allow us not just to combat this pandemic, but also to address other potential pandemics in the future. Thank you. All right. So we're here in the U.S. and we're seeing two systems working side by side. We see 50 governors taking 50 different approaches or at least 50 different speeds, similar approaches. And we're seeing the federal government take a broader approach, more on the economic side and on testing and on stimulus packages. We, we in the UAE, we're a small country. We can't afford to do seven different approaches with the seven different Emirates. So we've taken a more centralized approach. So in either of your opinions, is one better than the other? Should we have a standard centralized approach for countries versus 
sort of multilateral or a variety of different speeds as we're seeing here in the U.S.? Is one system better than the other in dealing with this? Dr. Newman, you, you take a first crack at this. Well, it, it's hard to know uh, whether one thing is better than the other, but it certainly uh, makes running an organization like ours easier and more effective when you have clarity of, of what you're dealing with. For example, in our uh, region, we have to deal with not only the federal government, but we have three essentially state governments, Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. And even within that, there are differences in how they're approaching things. But our facilities are in all three of those uh, states. Patients are crossing those state lines to be cared for. And, and so it, it is a, a struggle when, when there's not a clarity of, of purpose and direction for everyone. So, you know, I, I think the guidance uh, in having a, uh, a strategy and an approach that uh, guides, that gives some flexibility, uh, to, as Tom mentioned before, to the geography or the culture uh, that's, that's on the ground that creates a sustainable approach is the most effective. Just to uh, follow up on what Tom was talking about, we too have created a, a safe environment, not only for the health workers, but for the patients. And that can be done uh, very safely, not only here at the hospital with our 7,000 employees, but we have a big construction project going on. And we have four or 500 workers out there, and only four of those have tested positive. So there's a, a, a lot of ways uh, uh, to get the economy uh, moving again using the uh, time-tested uh, things. But having that overall guidance from a more centralized authority, I think, is key uh, to making sure that not only do we open up uh, the economy, but we keep it open and that we uh, take the kinds of approaches we need to prevent this pandemic and this wave from coming back. I want to I go back quickly to something that Dr. Malevich mentioned, because I'm very curious. I'm always trying to look towards the future and see what's going to be coming down the line. You said we have not used the tools at our disposal in the 21st century, things like AI and information exchange and data exchange. Do you think what we are learning from what we're going through now, we will be better prepared for the next pandemic? Um, are we going to be in a position to use all those tools that we have at our disposal that we're probably not using effectively right now? I'm very optimistic. I believe that we, we will and we have to. We have to because this is in, it is in, in shared interest of every country in the world is to be more effective in combating new pathogens, new, new pandemics. Uh, if you take a look just as an accelerated path in uh, looking for a vaccine, you know, this, the, the use of a, a combined approach for very many uh, research laboratories around the world, you know, has created a lot of progress in a relatively short period of time. We oftentimes lose perspective that we've just kind of gotten into this uh, uh, since January here in the United States, so only four months into a pandemic, but a lot of new knowledge has emerged. So I do believe that a broader global collaboration, in particular when it comes to research and knowledge advancement, is going to be essential alongside with the coordination of the public, public health care efforts. Because we can, we're only going to be successful in combating this if every country in the world 
is successful? I think uh, that's spot on. Uh, I think that the research is now beginning to catch up and you're starting to see a very uh, fast advancement of using the latest uh, genetic tools uh, to identify the virus. The genome was out very quickly in terms of uh, what was identified. And there's laboratories all over the world now working on a new vaccine. Similarly with uh, uh, testing, that has moved very quickly to get a test or tests that work and then are spread. But that's where we also were behind. And as that comes more and more online and there's simpler tests and they're quicker, and then we get the antibody testing, we're going to get a handle on this thing. I think we were just caught short and uh, we didn't maybe hadn't invested the way we needed to in research and, and early signs and surveillance on these viruses that are crossing over. But I'm confident that, that we'll be able to use all of these tools to not only put this pandemic behind us, but also solve for future. Thank you, Doc. My last question specifically to Dr. Newman, and doctor, sorry to put you on the spot, no pressure, but on behalf of parents all around the world, what is your best assessment on what you think we will be prepared to do or not do come September, come the next school year? Do you think schools will be open, not open, online, offline? What should we as parents be prepared for come September? Well, that's a terrific question, and it, I'm sure it's on every uh, uh, parent's mind, every child's mind. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about that here in Washington, D.C. We have been testing lots of children, many of whom aren't that sick. We started out basically thinking that the virus, and this was coming from a lot of uh, different places around our country and other countries, that the virus didn't really impact children. What we've seen in our testing capability is that the positive rate was 40%. Does that mean that there's something different going on with the virus? The other piece of information is that we're getting is that there's a severe form of this virus in children. So that notion that children aren't necessarily that affected by the virus may not be true. I think it's too early to know. Again, a a trade-off question in, in a way is it's so important to have kids in school and be educated. But at the same time, we need to be sure that we can deliver on that safely. And until there's a vaccine, I'm not, I don't know that, you know that that trade-off is going to be a very, very difficult trade-off. Thank you, Dr. Newman. Let me finish by first thanking both of you. I want to thank Dr. Newman and Dr. Malovich for being with us today and for sharing their insights with us. But more importantly, thank you and thank you to the institutions that you are both running for everything they are doing as this world tries to navigate one of the scariest things it has ever lived through. Thank you to all of your doctors, your nurses, your technicians, your experts, you know, the doctors who are doing diagnoses on Zoom now, reaching out to everyone who still needs help. And I think we've lived in a society where the military is always get the highest respect and praise. But I think after this, healthcare workers are going to be in a very similar category for everything they've been going through and enduring in these traumatic times. So thank you to you and everybody on your teams for helping us get through this pandemic. And more importantly, thank you for your friendship. I hope Dr. Newman, the next time we chat, we can chat about Georgetown soccer or even catch a game together. 
Tom, maybe we can go back to discussing how great the Croatian national soccer team really is. But both of you, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for being on the first podcast of Podbridge. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. It's terrific. I look forward to both of those things. And I'd like to get into that debate about the Croatian side. (laughs) Tommy and Kurt are two of America's most accomplished doctors who are leading the fight against the coronavirus. They've had deep experience working in the UAE and in the Middle East, where they have shared their expertise and shown their dedication. In that spirit, and in keeping with the theme of Podbridge, I had the opportunity to speak earlier this month with an Emirati doctor working on the front line here in the U.S. Dr. Ailan El-Zeki is a resident in internal medicine at Stanford University. Even as the force of the pandemic accelerated, he made the decision to remain in California to help U.S. patients and to continue his medical training. Here's a short clip from our conversation. I had plans to go back to, the last time was probably in 2018. So when you're in medicine, you don't get to choose your vacation. Your vacation chooses you. And so I had all the, you know, everything lined up to go uh, in April when I was on vacation. And then all this happened. And I was like, no, it's okay. You know, airports will be open. It's okay. It's okay. And then uh, a lot of my friends were, you know, who are on, who are, you know, in different areas were like, oh, you know, the UAE is asking us to come back. We have to, you know, we have to get flights. And I was like, oh, interesting. I was like, well, I, you know, I, I can't leave. You know, it's not like my colleagues need me, my patients need me. I can't just say, pick up my bags and leave. And so it was a tough choice, but I was, you know, I, I ended up staying here for better or for worse. I mean, or I think for better, you know, we're helping people here and but worse, is, uh, you know, I can't see my, fa- my family. I am so proud of Dr. Ailan and all the other Emirati doctors who have remained in the U.S. to treat patients. I am thankful to our guests who have shared their expertise and to the Americans who have stayed in the UAE to help Emiratis. Future episodes of Podbridge will explore and reinforce this principle of interdependence and common purpose. We will talk about art, culture, space, artificial intelligence, sports and technology, faith and tolerance. We hope to have you back again. Follow these discussions on podbridge.com or on social media at UAEUSA United to learn more about this podcast and about the relationship between our two countries. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Podbridge. We look forward to having you back again with us. This has been Podbridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the Podbridge Project, follow us on Twitter at UAEUSA United or visit our website at podbridge.com.